Throughout the centuries, certain forms of creative expression have attained a level of preeminence in Western society, studied and praised and celebrated by many as our greatest achievement. These revered forms of culture include classical literature and poetry, the music of the great composers, and the paintings and sculptures of the old masters. The names associated with these magnificent accomplishments are known to all. Da Vinci, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Wilde, and Picasso. Great as these mediums and their finest practitioners are, our society also cultivates a vast amount of creative work whose expressions are often relegated to the fringes by the arbiters of good taste. These marginalized forms of culture include professional wrestling and the world of games and fantasy, the work of independent filmmakers and musicians, and the unique art and narratives found in comics. The names associated with these often unappreciated accomplishments are not quite as iconic. Savage, Gygax, Lee and Kirby, Flair, Moore, York, Jackson and Livingston. However, these names and the mediums they are associated with are great. And while they have often been neglected by academia, their greatness is apparent to millions of people and celebrated every day. Good taste be dead. Alongside my partner in lowbrow fandom, Yo. We strive to illuminate the names of these rejected individuals and the art they create and allow you, the listener, to discover new and wondrous worlds of creative expression. We are the knowledgeable champions of the unrecognized. We are the Fringe Scholars. Episode 4, Horror. It's a hard word. It just sounds like horror. We already, we did it. Kogel. I'm Kelly Nelson. And today we've uh, we've got a very uh, special treat for all of our listeners. Well, for Kelly's sister, who's our only confirmed listener. Uh, we've got a very special treat for Kelly's sister today. We have a third fringe scholar with us here today. Say hello. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Davis Dorsum, and... Uh... I'm here to talk about horror. That's right. Davis Dorsum. Um, I probably should have written up a bio for you. <laughs> Davis is a, is a charming man uh, under the age of 30. <laughs> Curly hair, fierce glasses. I don't know. <laughs> a, lo- a, a lifelong uh, scholar in 
in the field of things that nobody else really cares about. <laughs> and Davis has selected our our topic for the day. Uh, so today we are, yes, going to be talking about horror, uh, which I'm going to let Davis explain, partially because I can never get over the sense that when I say the word horror, I'm just saying the word whore. <laughs> I, I can't hear the difference myself. No. I don't know if anybody else is able to. Does it sound like I'm saying horror when I say that? Is that horror? You know, this issue has has plagued the genre of horror for hundreds of years, uh, going back to the early Gothic era. Um, I believe that may be why the term Gothic was invented in the first place, just to uh, be able to avoid um, possibly misspeaking and saying whore in civilized company. <laughs> Makes as much sense as anything to me. <laughs> So yeah, Davis, why did why did you choose this uh, why did you choose this topic? Why is this what you want us to talk about today? Uh, well, horror has always, and especially horror in film, but horror in literature uh, as well. I've always found to be interesting and um, kind of an innovation driver um, among these mediums, and at the same time always uh, really just shit upon as being kind of the a really base form of entertainment. Well, I was, I was really surprised, yeah, when you said that it's, that it's an innovative genre, because, yeah, I feel like it's always seen as just being sort of schlock, right? Like, just sort of, you know, pulpy, grimy nonsense. Yeah, and what, what tends to happen with horror is... Um, accolades are awarded in retrospect <laughs> instead of at the time. Hmm. Um, you know, the earlier thriller movies um, from the, the pulp noirs to, uh, to Hitchcock's thrillers um, are seen as kind of a respectable form now. Hmm. And at the time were, um, again, considered base thrills, kind of lowbrow stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it's always kind of been a, a genre-driven, like pulp or science fiction or fantasy, um, by people working on the fringes, uh, a lot of people working uh, just kind of to, to pay the bills, um, really kind of driven um, just by people trying to live off of it, mm-hmm. kind of make a, a, a lower-class career out of it. Yeah, when I think of, of classic horror film, I think of, yeah, I think of Hammer horror films, I think of Ed Wood, I think of Klaus Kinski, you know, I think of of these people that sort of tried to do a lot with very little. Yeah, and, and that's part of, um, part of it is, it is a money-driven genre as well. Um, what tends to happen is these innovations kind of push forward the genre and then there's a bit of a back step as uh, people rush in to, to copy the last big push and uh, just make a, a dollar off of uh, someone else's. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. You know what? This is great. This is wonderful. Uh, the theory is always a fun part of this episode, but I want to get to the meat. I want to get to the sweet, sweet meat of this all. What do you say, Kelly? We have 
studied the wrinkles on this walnut long enough, and now I want to bust it open and eat some of that. Some of that. Yeah. Well, I used meat already. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do this. All right. Okay. It is time for horror. Moss talks about Steve Jackson's House of Hell. For the audience, uh, just about everybody knows about Choose Your Own Adventures, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is a line of books that is also simultaneously a genre of books. It's these game books where, as you're reading, uh, you are choosing the decisions that are made by the protagonist. You are the protagonist. It speaks to you in the second person. You're reading and it says, you look around the chamber. Another passageway leads from the chamber. Will you move quietly along the wall towards it? Or will you instead turn around and go back the way you went? And so, you know, you turn to one end to continue down the passage. You have to turn to page 314 to turn around and go back. Choose your own adventures are just one line of books within this genre of game books and and as i recall choose your own adventures i mean i don't know that much about them so i might have horribly offend a lot of aging nerds that have huge collections of them but they seemed a little bit more infantile to me you know the choose your own adventures seemed kind of aimed towards a younger age range uh a little less i don't know gravity in their content actually i think that there was sort of an adult line and a and a youth line. Maybe I just read the youth line. But the line of books that I particularly liked when I was young were the fighting fantasy adventure game books. These were made by, by two weird little nerds named Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. And, uh, and they put together this line of books where not only are you choosing your own, your own path, you're deciding whether to open the door or search the room or turn around and go back the way you came, climb the stairs, but you're also sort of incorporating um, almost a type of role-playing game, something almost akin to like a tabletop role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons, like I told you about, Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an inventory where you pick up items throughout the game world. You pick up swords, you pick up weapons and armor, you pick up jewels and potions and money, and uh, you sort of interact with characters throughout the throughout the uh, the book, from friendly non-player characters that you might you know be able to buy equipment from or get information from, or monsters that you actually have to fight. Now, I loved this because as a kid, I was a big frickin' nerd, and this was like, you know, when you didn't have enough people around to play D&D, uh, you could just play one of these game books, and it was sort of the same, right? To a certain degree. Uh, realistically, looking back on it, I'm not sure that these are better than the straightforward choose-your-own-adventures where where you don't have to fight monsters, um, because really all the fighting comes down to in the fighting fantasy games the whole fighting part of fighting fantasy basically comes down to you see a troll roll some dice now to determine whether you lose the game and then you you roll some dice and if you roll good numbers then you win and you get to continue to the next page and if you lose 
if you lose your dice rolls, then you're done and you got to start back at the beginning. And realistically, that isn't very fun. (laughs) You know, you're halfway through the book and then, oh, a troll killed me. Time to start over. So I don't know if that's actually a good thing, but... So they're... In a sense, and this is a gross oversimplification, but they're, they're novels that chance may dictate that you have to start again from the beginning. <laughs> that is not a gross oversimplification. That is a completely accurate depiction of what this is. They are... It's like you were reading through Ulysses and just found a note inside that said, start the book over again. Nope. Try again. <laughs> read, read incorrectly. Yep. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. And so, I don't know, take that as you will. I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> I, uh, I do collect these books now because, you know, you find them in just every, every used bookstore. They've got a really distinct green spine, this lime green color down the spine. And, uh, and so they stand out immediately. You look usually in the children's book section and, you know, for a buck or two you can pick up you can pick up Robot Commando or The Talisman of Death or The City of Thieves or Midnight Rogue or any of these things. They made they made dozens and dozens of these books back in the 80s. Uh, the book that I want to talk about today is uh, from 1984, The Year of My Birth. It was published by Puffin Books. It is the 10th book in the series of fighting fantasy adventure game books, and it is so far, their only real foray into modern horror. And it is called House of Hell. Also called House of Hades in the United States, where hell was seen to be too, <laughs> too offensive of a word to throw out there. You know, much like sorcerer. Um, they have, they have, where there is still a significant fear of uh, Greek gods. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> They could, they could totally relate to that. Hades, <laughs> shit. Uh, so, this is, as I said, the uh, the only sort of uh, fighting fantasy foray into modern horror. That is to say, it's set in the modern day. Typically, these books are all set uh, in sort of a medieval fantasy world where you're always kind of just an adventurer with a sword and some provisions, and you're setting off on a grand adventure, and, and you're just kind of, you know, doing your standard fantasy shtick, rescuing princesses, finding treasure, fighting trolls, um, restarting the book when trolls roll better than you. But in this one... You're just a dude. You're just a dude whose car breaks down, and it's a it's totally a uh, a pretty trite, but uh, but you know a solid classic uh, horror hook. You uh, you have your car break down outside of a mysterious house. You go inside. There's a spooky dude that lives there and a creepy stoic butler, and you wind up getting embroiled in this crazy. Um, you know, macabre uh, masterpiece of of cultists and demons and devil worship, and uh, and basically the whole thing plays out like a horror movie. Uh, there's a lot of things that I really like about it. Basically, you're not you're not strong and powerful in this game. You are weak. Typically, in any of these adventure games, you start out with a sword, at least, right? You roll some dice to determine your skill at combat. You roll a a six-sided die, and then you add six to the number. So you wind up getting a score between seven and 12, and that's how good you are at fighting. In this game, 
it starts you by doing that, by rolling your skill, and then it just subtracts three from your skill. It just says, <laughs> no, no, you're not. You're not great. If Maybe if you find a weapon or something, you can raise your skill back up. But even if you roll a 12, no, you're starting the game with a skill of nine. So you're not actually that capable because you're just a man that doesn't have any, that doesn't have any weapons. Uh, also, this is just the most difficult game in almost the entire series. It's, it's one of the most notorious books that they made because it's just full of, of just like irre irreparable dangers that you just cannot get away from. Uh, it's a bit frustrating. If, uh, if this is the first book that you're playing in the series, probably a bad call because you're going to lose a lot. I've read on the internet about people playing this book for seriously years, just going back to it and trying to trying to figure out the correct path because it's just full of red herrings and dead ends, elaborate sequences that can basically only lead to your death. Uh, it, it's, it does a fantastic job of playing with expectations. I'm going to give you a little, uh, a little example of something here. Okay. Um, it's got a great bit at the end. I am going to sort of ruin the book a little bit here. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah, I'll never play. All right, are you, you're you're fine with that? Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, at the end at the end of the book, you uh, you have uh, you've basically confronted the the owner of the house and his butler, and the two of them kind of come at you, and they sort of split up. And the Earl of Drumer is coming at you from the left side, and the butler is coming at you from the right side. And the book asks you, which one do you want to fight first? Which one do you want to attack? So let's say that you attack the Earl of Drumer, okay? It says here, okay, resolve your battle with the Earl of Drumer. Uh, his skill is 9, his stamina is 10, and so you have to roll dice in comparison. You compare both of your skills, you roll dice for combat, and the stamina is how much health he has. So every time that you hit him, you deduct 2, and every time he hits you, you deduct 2 from your own stamina. So you have this fight with him, right? You, you roll the dice, you have this elaborate combat. If you win, you turn to page 288. Okay, good. You beat the, the Earl. The Earl of Drumer drops to the floor dead. You breathe a heavy sigh of relief, for you have defeated the evil master of the House of Drumer. But what of Franklin's? Must you also destroy the butler? Turn to page 104. Okay, so you flip, flip, flip. Yeah, all right, great. Flip, 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 flip. There's a lot of flipping in these. You feel a stab of pain in your back. You reach out to grip the wound, and blood oozes through your fingers. Even though his master is dead, Franklin's will fight on. You turn round to face the butler before he can attack again with his knife. Deduct four stamina points and turn to page 180. Okay, so you've just got to deduct four stamina points. You've already had this big fight, so you might just straight up die right there, right? You know, it does, it does four damage to you. You may have just died. If you're still alive, you turn to page 180. And it says, the sight before you is the last you will ever see. The wound you have just suffered and the butler's terrifying transformation are more than you can bear. Franklin's is no more. His human shell has dissolved, and now he stands before you as his true self, a hideous demonic form surrounded by a cloud of vapor. Steam hisses from his mouth, and blood, your own blood, drips not from a knife, but from a huge savage claw that is his right hand. As you drop dying to the floor, this creature from hell steps forward to crush you with its goat-like hooves. You may have defeated the Earl of Drummer, 
but not the master. So the reason that I, I point out this sequence is because you make a choice, okay? The choice is to fight the Earl instead of the butler. You then have to actually fight the Earl, in which case you might die. If you survive, then the butler stabs you in the back and you might die. If you survive that, you just die. <laughs> so, you know, you've, you've, spent, you've spent ten minutes doing this elaborate sequence, potentially dying many ways along the, along the road, uh, just to die at the end. You have to fight the butler first. That's that's the correct. That's the correct thing to right. do. So this game is just full of these pitfalls where you know, okay, I'm going to go explore this path. Nope, you might go down, you know, 20 pages flipping through different different reference points and doing all these different things just to find at the end. Ha ha ha! No, you die. You die. You lose. <laughs> and I love that. It reminds me of horror. It is. It's like a horror movie. You're like you're like the characters in a slasher fic, except you are every character. You are the one character that survives at the end, but you're also every character that dies along the way because you do all these stupid things throughout the course of the book. You go into the dark room and fumble around for a light switch and then get bitten by, you know, like some frickin' gargoyle and die. Or, or you wander into the woods to try and escape the house and then wind up getting your head ripped off by, you know, uh, some horrible monster. It just, it just keeps going. There's all these different ways for you to die. You know, Davis, do you agree that people watch slasher films, horror movies, kind of for the the thrill of, of death do you do you think that people watch it to see people get killed i think yeah you know i think there are probably two main reasons um the illusion of power and the illusion of powerlessness <laughs> <laughs> i think i think that is a key part of it i think that uh i think that death is a big part and you know it's interesting with the false paths in this book, um, because I'm remembering uh, how I would read uh, Choose Your Own Adventure and the uh, fighting fantasy books that I remember mm -hmm. uh, as a child. Um, it seems like that might put a bit of fear, a bit more fear, into the reader because uh, a technique I remember is just holding your finger on the page <laughs> and going ahead and seeing if the choice you have made results in you dying or not. And then you just turn back. Just flipping back. <laughs> I'm going to go the other way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's, that's a whole thing. The, I mean, this, this was written by, by Steve Jackson. And as I said, this was his 10th book. And he was getting pretty savvy at this point. He does a lot of playing with expectations by having, yeah, these, these chains of events. So you might, you might be reading you might have done that fight with the Earl of Droomer and then got stabbed in the back by the butler and died and thought to yourself, oh, if I had just been healthier at that point, I would have kept going. And then you play the entire book again, get to that point, and then do the same thing because you don't realize, oh, I'm, I'm just going to die next turn. He has, uh, he has same, same paragraphs that have different numbers. Uh, sometimes another little trick that you learn when you read these books is, you know, if reference 100 is you know a paragraph that says you fall down a hole and die the end then you start to remember reference 100 
you know, you, you're flipping through the pages and it says, do you want to jump over the chasm? If you attempt it, turn to page 100. You're just like, uh-uh, no, I don't 100. I ain't doing that. I ain't falling for that again, book. Uh, well, this particular book has sort of the same paragraph duplicated in different places with different paragraph numbers so that you get tricked. You know, it says, do you want to do you want to try to climb down the well? Turn to page 255. And you're just like, oh, yeah, it's not 100. And then it's just like you turn to the paragraph and it says turn to page 100. <laughs> no, no, got me. So the, yeah. mecha the mechanics of the book itself are trying to kind of replicate that vulnerability that you're supposed to feel as a character. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you start with nothing, um, the fact that uh, that you you are constantly in peril of dying and and there's so many like there's this elaborate i made a map of this the last time i played it and it's it's huge the the house the mansion that you're in is enormous there's a whole upstairs just full of rooms and there's this whole underground sort of you know series of tunnels and yet like 80 percent of the rooms that you have the option to go into just have nothing but bad stuff in them like you will gain nothing Upstairs, there are all these rooms. They're named after sort of uh, biblical and demonic characters. You have the Shaitan room, the Mammon room, the Diabolus room, the Mephisto and Azazel and Erasmus and Abaddon, Asmodeus, Eblis. There's all these different rooms. You go into a room, and typically what happens is it's just like, a ghost scares you, blah, and then you, and then you have to leave. <laughs> and it's just like, wait, what did I gain from that? You gained nothing. Uh, and yet, you need to explore in order to figure out how to beat the game, because you need certain items, you need to get a special knife, you need to get certain information, and so you have to do it. It's forcing you to do it, and yet, at the same time, Typically, you're just you're just going to die. Anyways, House of Hell, fantastic. Uh, one other cute little thing that they do in this game, just to make it even more difficult, is they give you a fear system, where if you get too scared, you lose the game. <laughs> you basically, what does it say? Your your heart stops or something like that. <laughs> as well as surviving your adventure by ensuring that your stamina never drops to zero. In the house of hell, you must also avoid being frightened to death. Before you begin your adventure, roll one die and add six to the result. This total will give you the maximum fear points that you can bear. Your fear score is the number of points you can take before being frightened to death. So, basically, you're wandering around this house, and a spooky thing jumps out at you. And the book tells you, add two fear points. And, uh, and every now and then you can, like, drink some brandy and, like, chill out some, some fear points, you know, just <laughs> lose a little bit. You get a lot of brandy in this game. There's no provisions or potions or anything like that, but there is brandy. That, that's kind of the, uh, <laughs> the one consolation they give you, the one respite. But, uh, but the fear thing is hilarious because, because, yeah, it's just this timer basically ticking down towards your inevitable demise. And and finally, when you get as many fear points as you rolled a fear score, fear tolerance at the beginning, you die. Ah, heart stops. You're scared to death. You got to start over. But here's the thing. Uh, you have to you have to roll a six-sided die and add six to it. So your range is anywhere between seven and 12. <clears throat> in the game, in order to beat the game, you need to incur 
at least eight fear points. And that's if you're real tight. Which means that if you roll a one or a two at the beginning of the book, you just lose the book. You cannot beat the book. <laughs> so, so there's, it, I mean, you don't know it when you're starting out, but you can be condemned just by going into it, right? Because there is a minimum amount of fear that you're going to get. So if you don't, if you're not hardy enough, if you're not tough enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's very... It's very uh, typical of the genre. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the things about this. They do this fantastic difficulty and peril because the heroes in a horror movie are never in control, right? I mean, Davis, you you said it when you when you said that it uh, that it mirrors the the helplessness, sort of the vulnerability of uh, of a horror protagonist. Because it's always, horror is defined by sort of the villains or the circumstances that conspire against the heroes being the controlling figures, right? They're, they're the driving forces. The heroes are sort of just trying to escape or trying to survive. And that is all you're trying to do in this game. There's a wonderful point where you wind up down in the basement and there are some cultists and they're the totally creepy type of cultists that have, like, animal heads plopped over their their actual heads. That always just really unnerves me when you've got, like, like you know, a, a spooky dude in a cloak with, like, a ram's head <laughs> like, as a mask. Ugh, that I just find that really unnerving. Um, yeah. Anyways, they have a woman, a, uh, a naked young girl... Uh, and there's a picture of it with some artfully draped um, cloth covering her her naughty bits. Um, and uh, and yeah, they've got her on this on this um, altar, and they're going to sacrifice her. And there's all these cultists who are around. There's like 30 of them or something, and they're all watching this. They're watching this scene, and the main cultist, you know, has his knife, and he's about to sacrifice this girl. And it asks you, it says, uh, do you wish to watch the proceedings? Do you want to try to find a way out? Or do you want to try to rescue the young woman? And so, you know, you go, all right, I'm going to turn to page 328. I'm going to try to rescue the young woman, right? You know, it's, it's an adventure game. You want to be the hero. So uh, page 328, you leap into the center of the ceremony with a loud war cry. The young woman looks up at you, hopefully, your daring rescue is commendable for its bravery, but unbelievably stupid. <laughs> you hope to stand your ground against 40 opponents. They surround you, grab you, and the priest cuts your throat with his knife. <laughs> you deserved to die. That's what the book tells you at the end there. You deserved to die. You do not understand horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You try to save the girl and live happily ever after, and yeah, you deserve to die. The only way to win, the, or, the, or the most effective way, is to watch her get sacrificed and then sneak away. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what you get to do. So you get to be that, you get to be that, uh, that sort of dispassionate horror observer. You get to be the, uh, the, the person watching the film and watch her get sacrificed and then you slink away sort of ashamed of yourself that's that's how you win i think that particular scene is very representative of the uh, of the culture behind it right 
Yeah, I just kind of wondered that about um, how you would do a, a fighting fantasy horror novel. <laughs> yeah. um, because I, I feel like an important part of a lot of horror is kind of this lack of agency that the, the viewer tends to have. Mm -hmm. even, I mean, while you're watching usually some form of protagonist, you, you're still just watching them. Um, I mean, there's the, the kind of cliched yelling in the theater, no, don't go in that room, behind you. Um, but you, you can't affect what's going on in the screen at all. And, and in fact, usually the protagonist in a, a horror film is kind of lacks an agency of their own until, until the very end, which is what mm -hmm. usually brings an end to the story. And that, and that is what, I mean... <laughs> somehow they managed to achieve that because as i said there's all these rooms in the house and and it's just no end of terrible stuff but you have to explore them all so even though you're reading the book and controlling the actions you're still thinking the oh don't go in that room no this room's just going to kill me but then you do it anyways because <laughs> got to do it in order to do the game so it sort of puts you in a position where where you have to be the stupid you know the stupid hero that that blunders into danger, but but at the same time, I think I really, I think I really hit it when I said that you're every character in a in a slasher film in this right through multiple lives through through repeated deaths, you are the characters that do the dumb things, and you're also the character that yeah gets a sense of competency at the end. You manage to find this this special knife, and in the end, you fight this hell demon that comes out of the butler and you kill him and uh, and then you uh, succeed and you and you walk away and uh, and so you get to have that sort of success at the end while still retaining all the sort of desperate hopelessness of of all the characters that die along the way this is the uh, this is the finale <clears throat> page 400 the creature howls as you strike the final blow. It totters on its hooves and crashes down onto the table. As it falls, its flailing arms smash into the chandelier in the center of the room, scattering candles onto the floor. From behind you, another cry goes up, and your other attacker, whom you've completely forgotten about, springs over the table to hug the beast pitifully. You ought to kill both of them, but the pathetic sobbing creature hunched over the huge bulk is hardly worth considering. In any case, something else much more dangerous has caught your attention. One of the candles which was knocked from the chandelier has rolled across the floor and set light to the heavy curtains. The fire is spreading rapidly. You must escape quickly. Smoke is beginning to creep out of the room as you close the front door behind you. Walking down the drive, you glance back to see the fire making rapid progress through the ground floor. Flames are licking along the wooden beams. In an hour or so, the place will be beyond rescue. From a safe distance, you watch the fire destroy the house. A fitting end, you think, for a house of hell. <laughs> the writing's never spectacular in these books, but it does. <laughs> it gets the job done. Yeah. Well, house of hell. I think that about wraps it for me. This is, this is you know one of my uh, one of my favorite. Of the, uh, of the fighting fantasy books, just because it does have such a unique take and it does such a good job of putting you into a different circumstance. Kelly talks about the WCW Chamber of Horrors match. Now, Kelly, 
I believe you have something a little a little different for us. Would you like to uh, to take the uh, second place? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's it's different. Um, you know, it's actually it's a good example of why wrestling and horror don't often mix very well, or why wrestling doesn't mix very well with when it tries to do you know like fantasy or sci-fi even. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> so this match um, is pretty famous in wrestling circles because it's a one of a kind. Actually, that's the only time they ever did this. It's uh, the Chamber of Horrors, as it was called. And you got it on in the background. <laughs> I, I did. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to change that. Actually. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, good. We could do like, a commentary for it, but no. Um, so this is actually also our first encounter as the scholars with the WCW promotion. Oh I my believe, goodness. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, if we're talking about sort of you know stupidest matches ever and, uh, and that sort of thing, I'm sure we're going to be back here a lot. Yeah, that's the thing with WCW is that they're kind of known for in wrestling circles as hitting extremes of either being doing these really good matches having some really good shows or the complete opposite end, you know, the, the worst <laughs> wrestling, the worst yeah. shows, um, ever, you know, it, it was a real schizophrenic, uh, promotion. Um, and this, so, uh, I'm watching this match in the background, the Steiner brothers, they're not spooky. <laughs> they're not scary at all. I mean, their tights are a little startling. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the the quality of the wrestling in this match is scary, because um, <laughs> it's poor. Oh, uh, here comes the butcher. There we go. That's a little, that's a little more thematic, yeah. I guess. Okay, well, maybe I'll set the uh, the stage for this. Um, it's from the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, um, which was uh, an annual show by WCW, mm. um, which I don't believe ever fell on the actual Halloween day. This one was from <laughs> October 27th, 1991. Close. Um, very close. Yeah. They always had a, like a Halloween themed, of course, set with tombstones mm-hmm. and such. And in the early shows, the early Halloween Havoc shows, they did um, do things like this with the Chamber of Horrors and other sort of like uh, half-assed attempts at doing like horror-related um, uh, characters or matches. So maybe um, can you explain what exactly the Chamber of Horrors is supposed to be? It just looks like a cage. Yeah. Um, the cage they used was known as the Thunderdome cage, which was a unique cage for WCW that actually, unlike the WWF cage at the time, where it was right up against the ropes, the mm-hmm. WCW cage expanded to where you could have an area around the ring also. Spooky. right? Yeah, so it was a bigger cage. Um what makes this the Chamber of Horrors is, of course, um, you have the, quote, uh, chair of torture, unquote. The mini, like a mini, uh, well, an electric chair um, in, in, a, in a mini cage that comes down from the, the, the ceiling. Oh, I do see some okay. coffins around the outside of the ring as well. Oh, yeah, there's also coffins. Um, and Sting seems to be hitting people with a sword. That's probably not a sword. The quality of the video is probably just not great. Uh, no, it's a kendo stick. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. There we go. Well, that's pretty... Uh, I, I, a typical wrestling weapon. So I take it you guys uh, didn't watch this uh, beforehand then? I, I did actually watch it. Oh, good. Thank you, Davis. The quality was a little Mod- low. 
Uh, I'm the busy guy. Exactly what I got from it. Uh, (laughs) I'll be honest. You're not sure what the match was trying to tell you? (laughs) I mean, uh, when it comes to wrestling, I don't think I'm really on steady ground as is. uh, (laughs) But I I was really uncertain as to what was going on in this match specifically. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's not. I mean, it's it's because it's so poorly structured. Um, It is not. It's not a good match. It's nowhere close to being even passable or average it's it's shift well tell um, us what they were trying to achieve here okay like, yeah um well <laughs> i don't know <laughs> basically i guess the attraction was that if you pay to see the show you'll get to see a match where someone will be electrocuted you know potentially or supposedly <laughs> because that's that's sort of the the um selling point of this match is the right chair right um so uh, I guess I'll run down the combatants. We have the two teams, four four on each side. The good guy side, or the babyface side, is made up of Sting, who um, is kind of looked at as maybe the, the face of WCW and definitely one of the most uh, remembered, fondly remembered WCW wrestlers. He's uh, blonde and flashy looking. Yeah, he was, he was face paint, kind of like a... Ultimate Warrior, mm-hmm. um, and while well, they were actually they started in the business together years before, um, uh, he was oh, definitely. Oh, sorry, I just got to interrupt you because yeah. I'm getting I'm getting a refer eye camera right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's God, that is fantastic. The view from the referee. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and for listeners uh, listening right now, you can watch this match on on Daily Motion. Uh, we'll p- provide a link so. That you can maybe uh, watch along with us. Um, <laughs> oh dear. So, yeah, you have Sting on the babyface team. You have the Steiner brothers, who were um, real brothers. Uh, they were a tag team for a long time, and they were yeah, it, they were often teamed with Sting as like the the top babyfaces. And then last but not least on the babyface side, you have El Gigante, um, a legendary. Um, wrestler as far as being someone who never figured out how to wrestle at all and very (laughs) tall yeah yeah yeah, probably the tallest i guess man oh Oh, the mini cage is down vader just pushed rick steiner (laughs) into the electric chair but oh steiner booted him in the groin (laughs) and now he's he's fighting his way back out yeah so and then on the the heel side you have quite a interesting collection of guys all very famous in their own right uh, first, Abdullah the Butcher, we mentioned him in a previous episode, um, uh, Canadian, actually, uh, Windsor, Ontario. Oh, I'd... I'm sorry, that was, that was, that was pretty good. Um, Sting just threw a, uh, a coffin lid up in the air and it dropped on Mick Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was a good, good use of the coffins. Yeah. A bunch of white orderlies have just stepped <laughs> out from back with a stretcher. And they've sort of done this ceremonial kneeling, kneeling. To, to, to drop the stretcher. It's very yeah. There's so much random crap <laughs> yes. in this match. Like this is the perfect example of an overbooked match. That's just you know they they have too much. They have the referee camera. They have the electric chair. They have random coffins with guys in masks in them for some reason. Wait, there's guys in the coffins? Yeah. Right at the beginning, a, a mask, a wrestler with a black mask on comes out of one of the coffins. 
<laughs> and he gets beat up, and that's like the end of him. <laughs> I didn't I, even I, notice I don't it. Know if I really understood what those characters were supposed to be. I, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think anybody really thought too much about it. Are they symbolic? Of... Because the announcers didn't really seem to understand either. Uh, I have a quote I wrote down from the match, which is one of the announcers says, What are these, the ghouls? <laughs> <laughs> what are these, the ghouls? I don't know, and I don't understand if they're supposed to just be kind of... Theatrical. Uh, I think they're the chorus. Or if they're, are they, are they supposed to be a, in the same way that the electric chair is, you know, supposed to be an electric chair? Uh, are they supposed to be ghouls? Aren't that, they literal ghouls? <laughs> are these dead wrestlers that have returned for yeah. this night only? That would have been a lot more interesting. Yeah, that would have been a lot more interesting if they actually did put that much thought into it. But no. I think this match was conceived, you know, probably maybe. Oh, yeah, there's there's a ghoul. Somebody someone has chained a ghoul to the cage. <laughs> That's yeah. Oh yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. Right. The mask guy. I don't know if he's officially a ghoul. The white guys outside are ghouls. The uh, same way that kind of tombstones are around the the wrestling match, and like they're obviously not people buried. Uh, under the tombstones. No, <laughs> probably not. Just for show. Um, Unless are these ghouls just there to kind of be, be Halloween trappings that are promptly ignored? Or Kelly, did they have this match on an old graveyard? <laughs> is this on, is this on top of an old Indian graveyard? No, it's actually yeah. from Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> no, this I mean it's just something that was conceived. I'm sure just one random afternoon. And guys just threw out, you know, stuff, you know, oh, let's have some ghouls, let's have an electric chair, let's have caskets, and then... Sort of one of those planning meetings where it's, we will use every idea. Basically. <laughs> Don't you worry, say anything, we'll use yeah. it. Yeah. At this point, if you're a fan of wrestling or know your wrestling history, WCW is going through a particularly uh, difficult uh, creative period where th there was just a lot of really bad ideas being thrown around, and, and that actually made it to air. And this was one of them. Um, I'm I'm nine minutes in, and yeah. they're, they're kind of standing. Like, yeah. everyone's sort of standing in the ring. Like, yeah. they're not even next to each other. They're just standing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it gets to the point that, yeah, there's no action. Um, and the crowd is pretty quiet throughout most of the match, <laughs> not knowing exactly what the hell they're seeing. Like, it is just... <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's unique. I'll give it's it. also pretty hard to make out because there's a yeah. cage inside of a cage that's yeah. really obscuring everything that's happening kind of behind it. Yeah. No, and it's yeah, like it's I said, there's too much to going on. Focus of the match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is no focus. It's no, nobody's really using the middle cage. Like, so far, only a couple people have, have been kind of tossed into the chair briefly. Most of the fighting seems to be going on around the... Uh, around the sides of the ring outside. I know. Within the, the cage where it's hard to see. And that's why we have the referee cameras so that he can peer down over the ropes. I am loving that. That's my favorite thing so far. Yeah. Because well, we all wanted to be the referee in these matches. When you watch wrestling, you think, I wish I was that referee. <laughs> I wish I was seeing what he sees. Oh, yeah. That Actually, this is the only time they use that. Um, it's a ripoff of... Um, at the time, there was a, a football league called the World League of American Football where they had referees with cameras on their uh, heads. Another. So they, they stole it directly from that. Um, a brilliant it, idea. Yeah. There's there's some blood going around here. Mick Foley, yeah. of 
Bruce is 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 all busted up as yeah. as can be expected. Sting seems to have a pretty nasty patch of red spreading <laughs> his his bleach blonde hair. Yeah. But then again, a lot of the a lot of the heroic characters are walking around with like sticks and clubs and chains. So <laughs> I know, I know. There's nothing heroic about the heroes. Um, yeah, oh, just 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 got another shot of the ghouls. I I didn't notice that they had white white face paint on. As well. I, I know the men standing around the uh, or crouching yeah. ceremoniously at the outside or of the ring. Looking, yeah. No, this is just a disaster. Um. I thought it may have some... It does have, I guess, a bit of campy appeal to it, but uh, it's a chore, really, to get through, sadly, considering, like, all the fun that you could possibly have in this in this setting, really. But Well, there there have been other attempts at, at horror wrestling, have there not? I mean, I yeah. cas- casket matches and right. buried alive matches, things like that. Most of them seem to revolve around The Undertaker. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like I said, horror and wrestling don't mix well. But in one, you know, exceptional circumstance, it has mixed well, and that is The Undertaker character from WWE, WWF. Who has been around now for 23 years and is... Yeah, one of the most notable characters ever. Mm-hmm. And and yes, I mean his specialty over the years has always been some sort of variation of a of a death sort of match, uh, the casket match where you had to roll your opponent into a casket and close it to win. <laughs> um, buried alive was done a few times, usually uh, not a very satisfying match. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean. The early Undertaker character was basically a, a zombie, where he barely, you know, was very slow and mm-hmm. and, and and didn't do much besides choke and uh, do these like thrusts into your throat. And so his matches were usually pretty boring because he was also going up against like really uh, sort of uh, big bigger wrestlers that couldn't do too much, like Kamala and Yokozuna, and and of course the, the wrestler in this match, El Gigante, eventually becomes. A wrestler in WWF known as Giant Gonzalez, and him and Undertaker have some really mm. legendarily bad matches. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm 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 sorry to interrupt you, but uh, but I just finally got a view of the referee with his referee camera on. Yeah, I know. That is an amazing piece of headgear. That's a hockey <laughs> it looks like it looks like a hockey helmet. Yeah, yeah, it is a hockey helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, they just grabbed a bunch of random props from wherever they could get it. Just uh, what they had out back. I'm surprised there aren't like happy birthday balloons and stuff oh, oh, oh cactus jack is going there's a switch on the outside of the cage i yeah. didn't realize rick steiner is being held into the into the electric chair cactus jack is going for the switch he seems to be having trouble throwing the switch he's just sort of stood there with his hand on it for the last minute and uh, there's a real funny and notorious uh, screw up in this match if you watch closely the switch actually earlier in the match falls down by itself <laughs> <laughs> and of course, doesn't set off the electric. Oh, there's the sparks! Yes, all of the butcher has been has been switched into the chair, and Cactus Jack, after two and a half minutes of holding the switch, has finally thrown it. But Cactus, it was at the wrong time. Oh my God, the 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 little helmet that's supposed to go over your head isn't actually on Kamala's head; it's hovering above it, and Kamala's just shaking around, and there's. 
Oh, I don't, there's flames and sparks. Yeah, the ring's on fire. <laughs> there's the ring is definitely on fire. There's a lot of smoke coming out right now. <laughs> Kamala is bloody. He's visibly breathing, and he just opened his mouth and then closed it again. So we're not really playing the, like, he's dead thing, but... Well, no. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's another thing with this gimmick is you introduce something, an electric chair, that, you know, in real life kills people. But in wrestling, you, of course, <laughs> can't do that. So well, why even bother? Wrestlers are stronger than than mere mortal men. Oh yes, yeah, I suppose. Especially Abdullah the Butcher, who's still actually I think wrestles occasionally these days, and he's seventy some years old. <laughs> Video de Snooke. Thank you, Snooke, for for putting this onto Daily Motion. Well, that was a treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trick or treat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kelly, you tricked me. Yeah, I tricked you into thinking it was going to be a treat, but it's not. Well, I don't know. If... <laughs> that was the equivalent of Charlie Brown getting a rock in his bag of candy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a monster, but uh, but thank you very much. That that was actually a pretty entertaining match. I would say if uh, if anybody out there is interested in watching, just yeah, just just a complete ridiculous debauch. And, and hold on, Kelly, do you know after the match, did they take Abdullah out and put him on the stretcher that the ghouls brought down? Because um, the ghouls got to they gotta <laughs> represent something. But knowing knowing WCW, the ghouls probably just left and didn't even play at all. I mean, that Wandered was off into the crowd. Typical WCW to just not even follow up on that or anything. Just wipe their face paint off, watch uh, the rest of the show. Yeah. They could still be out there today. <laughs> yeah. Can, can the ring. Haunting <laughs> yeah. Chattanooga. Yeah, haunting that arena. <laughs> during a full moon, WCW yeah. wrestling ring, you can still hear the silent padding feet of the ghouls. Yeah. Wandering Kneel. around. <laughs> just just kneeling. <laughs> yeah. Quietly. Uh, see, that's something they should have did for subsequent Halloween Havoc. Says <laughs> continuity, they could have had the ghouls keep turning and kneeling. <laughs> Just uh, kneeling. Maybe, yep, every year. You know. Maybe every year there were more of them. Yeah, yeah. Just, just double it every year until finally, ten years later, Arena's just full of ghouls. They're the only people watching the match. <laughs> yeah. Or was... all up on their post-WCW employment opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> they were probably just local wrestlers, I, I think. You know, it was... Uh... Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That's <laughs> I, this was short notice. Davis talks about John Carpenter's Halloween. Davis, yeah, what do you have for us? Well, uh, I spent some time looking at the old uh, 1978 classic uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. Wow, they're pretty. Uh, I, I'm not going to say a seminal work. But, uh, well, actually, would you I say would that? Say, I would say so. Yeah, I guess so. I'd say a, a seminal work. Why not? <laughs> Very influential, if nothing else, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I believe it is uh, one of few horror films that are part of the National Film Registry uh, by the Library of Congress. Wow, that's actually a pretty prestigious uh, accolade. 
Yeah, and it's it's uh it's really a pretty spectacular film that um, sets off some some pretty terrible trends in horror, <laughs> <laughs> and kind of brings us to where we are today with uh, a lot of the the post slasher or uh, remake and torture porn heavy uh, era of horror that we inhabit. Hmm. Well, take us into it. Gives I I haven't seen the Halloween for a while. Uh, I think the last time I watched it was with you, Davis, like maybe, you know, seven or eight years ago or something. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you a brief summary of the plot. Um, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, a masked maniac uh, returns to his hometown and stalks and murders babysitters. <laughs> That's pretty solid. <laughs> This is the uh, a, a, a brief overview of the art that is Halloween. <laughs> what's the what's the um, what's the motivation behind the babysitters again? The motivation behind the babysitters? What drives the babysitters to babysit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry, yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> what drives what drives uh, um, Michael Myers, the uh, the killer, to kill babysitters? Why babysitters? You know, that's actually one of the interesting parts of Halloween. Um, originally in the film, uh, the killer, Michael Myers, or uh, as he's referred to in the credits of Halloween 1, The Shape, uh, is a heavily ambiguous character. Um, he's not really given any motivation um, other than being, uh, quote-unquote, insane. Um, throughout the film, he's followed by his uh, doctor, uh, Dr. Loomis, who's played by Donald Pleasance, who is kind of a, an old hand of film. He'd been in, um, like, The Great Escape. He was a Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, um, and kind of brings this camp character uh, into an otherwise pretty mundane film. Uh, and he, he spends a lot of time expounding on how uh, this Michael Myers character, this masked killer, is uh, just a, a force of evil, um, kind of beyond life and death, I think he says. Um, ostensibly, the, Michael Myers, after, after killing his sister uh, when he was a young child, uh, six years old, I think, uh, in the, the beginning sequence of the film, um, just spends 15 years in an asylum, um, just kind of staring at the wall, from my understanding. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, his doctor, uh, Dr. Loomis, kind of puts forward that he'd, he'd just been waiting kind of for, uh, for the stars to be right, kind of waiting for a switch to go off in his head, um, at which point uh, on Halloween day, uh, he escapes from the asylum and uh, stalks and kills these uh, teen girls and their boyfriends. Hmm. It makes uh, it sound all very sort of uh, out of our control, like it, like it's just sort of a series of coincidences or or almost random acts. In a, that's kind of the sense that's built throughout the film. Um, there's this sense of like uh, fate bearing down on this uh, this final girl. Hmm. Um, 
I mean, it, it's kind of, it, on the surface, Halloween is this really kind of cheap B-horror fair. Like, the, the plot isn't really anything new. Um, you know, there'd been movies with uh, lunatics and masked men uh, slaughtering um, innocents before that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but Halloween's kind of the movie that brings it all together, and it... it it brings it all together with this um, this very strong sense of of composition of, uh, of this really simple minimalist but driving script. Uh, the soundtrack itself is very very spare, mm-hmm. very um, very driving itself um, with just kind of a, a very simple uh, sequence of, of piano notes and uh, synth strings that are that are played. Um, yeah. It is, it is, of course, a very, a very famous tune now, right? Almost anybody will recognize it. And yeah, there's something... Everyone knows the Halloween theme song. There's something fantastically repetitive about it that, uh, that is sort of ominous, right? Uh, the, the tedium, I think, of the music really sort of builds the tension in the film. soundtrack itself just kind of emerges by this uh this lucky coincidence of a very tight budget <laughs> a very driven uh director in john carpenter hmm. uh, he he does the soundtrack himself even though he's not particularly trained music uh i think his background in music is he uh he learned piano as a child uh, and then i from what I understand, couldn't particularly read sheet music. <laughs> just, just kind of had this uh, this this sequence of notes in his head that he'd had kind of banging around in there for a while, and uh, just, yeah, you know. And it, I mean, it's one of the that's great. It's one of the great parts of a lot of his earlier movies, to uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, which was kind of his first mm-hmm. uh, first big feature. Um, well big for a, a, a low budget uh action yeah western takeoff um also had the same kind of driving synth score um some of his earlier uh, movies after halloween like uh, escape from new york have the same kind of uh soundtrack mm-hmm. um, kind of loses it later on but um <laughs> john carpenter post 1990 is kind of a, a different beast than john carpenter before that point mm-hmm but this was this was 1978. What had what had Carpenter done before this point? Well, he had done uh, a student film, um, Dark Star, I believe, is what it was called, mm-hmm. um, back when he was in USC, um, and uh, he had done he had done some script work and uh, directed things here and there before this. Um, kind of his his one calling card was uh, Assault on Precinct 13, mm-hmm. which itself is kind of a, 
a spare, uh, minimalist, kind of brutal um, remake of the kind of classic Western siege movie, but uh, done in, contempor- in a contemporary uh, police station that was being closed and is kind of assaulted by this uh, almost faceless um, gang of criminals mm. trying to get revenge. Do you think that uh, do you think that Assault on Precinct Thirteen sort of um, helped him build up to Halloween? This this notion of kind of an overwhelming assault by a faceless, unknowable, you know, antagonistic force. I'm like that, that sounds like Michael Myers. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the themes that he he tends to come back to throughout his work. Um, kind of this. Uh, the horror of ambiguity and uh, I mean, more and more throughout his work, it kind of takes on a, a cosmic scope. Um, he, he was an earlier fan of HP uh, Lovecraft, who hmm. I had to talk about some other time, but in, in short was uh, uh, in the twenties, thirties, uh, a, a pulp horror writer who had kind of been one of the drivers of this uh, genre of horror uh, called cosmic horror. Um, or weird horror, which was kind of this uh, uh, scientifically informed uh, horror where the protagonist would be kind of overwhelmed by these vast and uh, uncaring forces beyond uh, his scope. Um, Mm -hmm. Ancient alien gods that didn't even care if they squashed you or Mm -hmm. over on you or anything. It was uh, kind of a a horror of... cosmic indifference like god exists and he doesn't even know that you exist hmm. fairly um, bleak, pessimistic yeah yeah it's definitely a, a kind of bleak pessimism at work in carpenter's uh carpenter's films so tell me more about uh, about halloween tell me tell me about why it was such an an influential movie kind of what did it set up for later for for later slasher flicks well, it's uh, there are a couple different things that kind of set it up to uh, to give birth to the the slasher genre and everything that came after it. Um, it brought together these uh, these different threads that, that hadn't really been particularly mainstream themselves. Um, kind of the the uh, the psychotic killer films of the '60s, like Peeping Tom, Hitchcock's Psycho. Oh, I loved Peeping Tom. That was a great movie. <laughs> uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dementia 13. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the more kind of stylistic uh, Italian um, pulp thrillers that were coming out around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, some exploitation film and revenge film trends that were coming out, kind of a lot of the more B movies that were having kind of independent limited runs in theaters, kind of scraped together to make cash and provide cheap thrills. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, there are a couple other kind of proto slashers, like uh, the one closest to Halloween would be uh, Black Christmas, 1974, um, which also had a, a kind of a really ambiguous um, villain, I guess. Um, a, a slasher that you don't really ever get a good look at, hmm. don't really ever get a motivation for it, but he's just kind of this presence, mm-hmm. um, like Michael Myers becomes in the film. That's interesting because you know you've mentioned 
uh, obviously movies like Hitchcock films or, or um, you know, obviously I think Psycho uh, probably, you know, even in just the use of a knife as a murder weapon alone, right, sort of precedes this. And also Peeping Tom, you know, I meant it when I said that I love that movie. That was a great movie. But when I look back at sort of the 60s, I feel like like you had these 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 demented films that i don't know almost i'm not going to say glorified or glamorized the villains but you saw more about them i mean psycho of course it's a twist at the end to find out who the villain is truly but in halloween you're not sympathizing with michael myers he's sort of the force that's chasing you the villain i mean sorry the uh, the viewer through the movie and you and the protagonists are kind of trying to get away from him. Do you think that there was a, a change around this time from, from trying to sympathize with the villains to kind of turning them into these, like you know, the, these, these cosmic horror sort of, uh, sort of characters? Well, Halloween does something interesting that um, all of its follow-ups uh, kind of reverse and really fail at kind of getting the same payout uh, mm. out of which is, um, I mean, Michael Myers is in some ways um, kind of a, a you know, like a psychological killer, um, the, kind of one of these psychopath murderers, but uh, he, he's really just stripped down. There's not really a lot you can hang on to as a character. He's just kind of this a faceless observer throughout a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, a lot of the camera work kind of makes the the audience complicit in the same way. Um, you're kind of uh, just kind of stalking these uh, these teenage characters uh, in the same way that Michael Myers is. So it, kind of, it takes you out of that kind of uh, psychological identification with the character and puts you more into a direct identification with the character. Interesting. So so it's not as if you're being given a character that you can sympathize with, but you're almost forced to to become the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the, the entire, the film starts off with uh, a, a very long uh, point of view sequence, um, just one unbroken, well, it's actually three shots from my understanding, but put forward as one unbroken shot of following Michael Myers as a child, as he kind of stalks around this house where he's supposed to be babysat and uh, and creeps inside of it and murders a girl, um, all from his perspective, which kind of puts the audience right away into looking from, from where he is, but uh, not really being able to identify why you're doing this. There's uh, I mean, kind of a, a lack of a sense of agency there mm-hmm. that kind of is part of the, the key part of this film. Um, and then following these characters through, uh, through school as they're in there during the day, um, you catch little snippets of teachers talking about uh, different authors' sense of what fate is. Hmm. Um, and all the time, this, uh, this film kind of collapses down on itself and becomes more and more claustrophobic and driven. Um, as uh, I mean, you start off in the beginning 15 years back with this kind of little prologue sequence. And then uh, you go into the beginning of the day when Michael Myers escapes and you're kind of skipping through the day. But the closer to night, the closer to the end of the film you become, um, the closer to real time the film becomes, the more uh, 
drawn in, the setting of the film becomes. Um, mm-hmm. He's stalking around this town. Um, then it's down to this neighborhood. Uh, he's across the street from the protagonist. Then he's in the house. They're running upstairs. Uh, in the end, kind of the last showdown, hmm. uh, Michael Myers has the, the protagonist trapped in uh, a closet and is just kind of swinging a knife at her, trying to reach her. And uh, she's kind of cowered against the, the back of this tiny little claustrophobic space. Um, and that's really kind of the point where uh, she chooses to fight back and kind of becomes the stereotypical final girl of, uh, of the slasher movies that followed. Mm-hmm. The one that survives, eh? Yeah. Yeah, and then... I mean, like I said, the, the movie, in a way, sets up um, kind of a formula for the slasher film in that, you know, you have this kind of uh, psychopath character um, who hunts down these uh, teenagers who are doing all kinds of quote-unquote immoral acts, like uh, doing drugs or having sex or drinking. Hmm. Uh, they're all killed off while one final uh, chased, buttoned-up character survives and <laughs> Um, but really the, the film itself, it, I mean, John Carpenter says that a moralistic reading of, uh, Halloween is kind of a misreading and that it's not because, uh, not because Laurie, the main girl is, uh, is a hero. It just, it's just, it's not because she's a kind of a chaste button down girl. It's, it's just because she's, uh, she's repressed and just not uh, distracted by these other, she, she ends up being kind of, it's like a, a paranoia that brings her through it. Not a, not a moral. Uh... <laughs> so it's not, it's not her virtue that saves her. It is the side effect of her <laughs> virtue, not letting her have enough fun. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. It's a, it's a repression that lets her survive and not a, not a, any kind of moral standing. Uh, um, and at the same time, like, uh, I mean, in later slasher movies, um, you have, uh, you know, they, they, they make the killers into these characters that the audience really gets into and build up these backstories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Michael Myers in Halloween is just a guy who breaks out of an asylum and then decides to kill these girls. That's that's the motivation that's given. Hmm. Um, now the problem is that Halloween was uh, a big success, uh, and they needed to they needed to run with that, couldn't they? I mean, a, a movie studio can't let a success just sit there. You can't just have a successful movie and say, "Well, wipe our hands of that. Good job, everybody." Yeah, I mean, the, the ending of Halloween 1 is uh, it, itself ambiguous in that um, Michael Myers is kind of, you know, he, the, the protagonist, Laurie, thinks she's killed him. She stabbed him with his own knife. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she kind of sits there sobbing in the house. And Michael Myers just silently rises up behind her. Um, and then her, uh, his doctor um, storms in and shoots him six times with a revol- revolver, and he falls out the window, mm-hmm. staggers backwards and falls out the window, and then they look out after him, and he's gone. Hmm. And then it kind of just uh, goes, as the soundtrack, as the theme song comes back on, it kind of just goes through this montage of shots of uh, silent, dark homes around the neighborhood. 
kind of giving you the impression that he's like he's nowhere but he's everywhere he's, he's just haunting this neighborhood now yeah he's kind of permeated into the fabric of it into the, the architecture of the suburbs mm-hmm. and then halloween 2 uh starts off with uh him just kind of being fine uh escaping the police and trying to track down this protagonist uh lori who survives and ends up in a kind of a coma for most of Halloween too. Uh, and then they start revealing his background that you know, Laurie, the protagonist is actually his sister and he's driven to mm-hmm. his family. Um, but not, none of this is in the first movie and it kind of strips away a lot of the, a lot of the ambiguity and um, a lot of the questions of the first movie that make it actually frightening. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, Carpenter said that he, he got through hammering out the script. He didn't direct the movie, but uh, he did write the script uh, for Halloween 2, and he, he said that he just um, drank a six-pack of beer every night and kind of hammered it out <laughs> <laughs> for the money. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that does explain a bit. But it's, I mean, it's this kind of return of a character that sets up these uh, these horror, these slasher franchises that mm-hmm. really just end up driving this kind of mainstreamed horror into the ground throughout the 80s and into the 90s. I mean, Halloween 3 is noteworthy um, for a couple reasons. One is that it's bizarre. Uh, But the real reason is that it it has nothing to do with the first two Halloween movies. Um, John Carpenter... um, just wanted to kind of give a, a like a Halloween horror anthology set up. So you, like every year you would just have a different movie and what would tie them together would be the theme of Halloween. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, I kind of like that ambition. That sounds like it. It would <laughs> it have been failed. <laughs> fun tactic. It just failed miserably. People hated Halloween three and just wanted to see more Michael Myers, which well, I feel like I feel like he blew it by making Halloween two still be about Michael Myers. If he had had Halloween two be sort of you know the first step in his in his very loosely connected Halloween series, then people would have got it. They would have been, oh, okay, great, we get a new movie every year. But but he gave them two movies following this this consistent yeah. chronology, and then he decided at the third one, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. No, you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, the, the damage had already been done by by Halloween, too. So yeah. it, it's that point where, I mean, you're set up with these kind of, like I said, franchise characters. Um, you've got the Endless Friday the 13th, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies being cranked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of sets the precedent for the remakes that we see now with the, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is back. And, yeah. They tried to tried to reboot Friday the Thirteenth and A Nightmare on Elm Street, and they're rebooting a lot of the a lot of the earlier kind of exploitation slasher movies too. Um, and Halloween's been redone a couple times. Yeah, yeah. They've tried to kind of bring it back to its roots. I think that's what they're going with for H two O Halloween Twenty Years. Yeah, later. yeah, that was a good. Movie. Just, just bringing the character of Michael Myers himself back kind of, kind of dissolves the horror of Halloween. Yeah. 
I remember, like, I saw more recent Halloweens before I ever saw the original. You know, I think I saw Halloween H2. That may have been the first Halloween movie that I saw, and it just didn't carry any weight. I didn't care about this this villain. He was just so, you know, he just he came across cheesy. He came across sort of trite, you know, like it wasn't anything to be excited about. I think I, I do remember hearing it may or may not have been Halloween H2O, but I'm pretty sure Jamie Lee Curtis came back for that one, right? Yeah. yeah. She came back for that. But she came back under the condition that they kill her character so that she never had to be in another Halloween movie again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, they're always trying to close off this story, but <laughs> there's kind of this uh, this unfortunate battle between what what people will pay money for and what's... Uh, what's respectable <laughs> yeah well that's why we have to we have to make our own chronology as as the viewers and the readers and the people that that take in this media you know we can't control what what publication companies and producers are going to make because they're just going to keep on chasing the dollars regardless of whether or not it's good for the for the canon right it's not going to help Halloween to be remade and to be rediscovered and rehashed again and again and again. So we have to sort of we have to sort of take that upon ourselves, right? We have to kind of make our own internal chronology. We have to decide what it is that we care about and then sort of just cut the thread and stop caring about it at some point. That's that's what I believe at least. That's that's I Build your own canon, is that what you're advocating? Build your own canon. Choose I think your own canon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I, uh, I think Halloween is a fantastic film, and, uh, and I haven't seen another film in the series that is anywhere near the same. <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't, it just doesn't hold weight. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm showing people uh, about what am I trying to say? If I was to tell somebody about classic horror films and slasher films from the seventies and eighties, I would show them Halloween, but I would stop there. I wouldn't show them anything more. I would not tell them about the rest, right? I would hide the truth from them that there was any more than this selective, selective memory, revisionist history. Halloween is all there was. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty grim from that point on. And not not the good grim, not the like spooky grim, <laughs> spooky but in but in the wrong way. Yeah, not fun grim, not good grim, just just kind of shitty, un- unpleasant. Just not yeah. fun. No. Now, some other day we're gonna have to talk about Freddy versus Jason because that was a work of art. That was <laughs> yeah. <a masterpiece>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah fun when you're a kid, uh, you know. I was big into the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets and stuff when I was a kid, but mm-hmm. yeah, watching them again nowadays, it's, yeah, why bother even? <laughs> it's a little hard. There's, there's, there's some good nuggets in there. Yeah. I mean, there are fun parts in it. Um, mm-hmm. And even if that, if, if they had all just ended up as fun films past that point, even that would be fine. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not worried about anything kind of ruining the integrity of Halloween. I mean, it, everything stands on its own, but mm-hmm. 
the sequels don't really stand on their own. <laughs> well, if only if only they had gone the route of uh, of Friday the Thirteenth. You know, Jason X, he got an upgrade. He goes to space. <laughs> Freddy versus Jason, right? Brilliant, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So that's that is, I think, the direction that a film series like this needs to go. Either either they, they need to do a, a a solid hard reboot, which is so difficult to do, right? Or they need to they just go to, full ridiculous, right? They just to, they have to reboot or go into space. Exactly, it. they really do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. I feel like I've learned a lot about horror today. Not horrors. Horrors. <laughs> not, not horrors. No, I know everything that I ever needed to know about horrors. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, yeah. There I'm wasn't much room for improvement there. No, no. no. But, uh, but this has been a very fun episode, and, uh, and I'd like to thank everybody for, uh, for helping out with this. Thank you, Davis. Yeah, I do have to. Uh, I do have to confess. I'm going to be taking a small step back from the Fringe Scholars in uh, in the following few months, uh, just because I have suddenly such an incredibly hellish amount on my plate. Uh, I've got a couple jobs that sort of need a bit more attention from me because they are the things that give me money. Yeah, <laughs> I do need to focus on those a bit. Yep. And uh, and I'm getting married in a month, so well, actually, when this episode comes out, I will. I, yeah, yeah, it'll be a couple weeks. It'll be like two weeks until until my wedding happens. So, anyways, lots of uh, lots of big priorities. But uh, Kelly is going to be happily taking taking uh, things in his own direction and bringing us some very very interesting topics. It sounds like not exclusively wrestling. No, no. Um, the plan is uh, next time for. Uh, me and my better half, Julia, to to tackle an episode. Uh, it could be a gigantic train wreck. It could be beautiful, uh, with a little <laughs> in between. Who knows? Not mutually exclusive. Yeah, a beautiful train wreck. It'll probably be a beautiful train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, it'll be on the subject of Bigfoot. So stay tuned. And uh, uh, if anyone's a big fan of Bigfoot out there, yeah, we're gonna cover it all, and it's gonna be. It's going to be something, that's for sure. But most importantly, if you're not a big fan of Bigfoot, <laughs> tune in to find out why you should be. So yeah, that's the plan for the next episode, Bigfoot, with Julia. And um, in the future, I have a few ideas, but nothing is set in stone yet, so I won't um, I won't say anything right now. But well, a lot of wrestling, uh, potentially. The reason that people tune into this podcast is is probably, I would assume, for the dynamic nature that's inherent in it. Uh, the fact that every single episode we've tried to figure out what the normal episode style is going to be, and then we never replicate it. <laughs> we always just do something completely different the next episode. So, so keep tuning in, and it's going to stay wacky. <laughs> yeah, it'll be wacky. We can promise you that. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen... Till next time. From the darkest borders of good taste. From the bowels of entertainment and culture. We, we are, are the, the Fringe, Fringe Scholars.
sitting in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from its slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the monster mash It was a graveyard smash It caught on in a flash He did the monster mash From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abodes To get a jolt from my electrodes They did the monster mash It was a graveyard smash End of episode.